Thanks, Levi. Well, good evening and welcome to church. I want to add my welcome to Jerry's. It's great to see you here. Uh, if you're new here and you haven't met me, I'd love to meet you tonight. Come, come and say hi. Uh, if you've got questions, we're going to have question time after this talk again. Uh, it's a pretty easy passage, not much to, to worry about. Uh, plenty of things to look at. Um, so I'm going to try and move through quickly. Uh, but I'd love to chat with you. And if you've got questions afterwards, come down the front and chat. We'll have a good time of being able to work through that stuff if we don't get through them on the screen afterwards. This passage tonight really um, is the culmination of, of, of a, a, a large argument that Paul has around this idea of what true spirituality looks like. So I want to prepare you for tonight. It's going to be faster than normal, uh, if that's possible. Uh, it's going to be a little bit denser, uh, but it's worth hanging in there and trying to pull together what God is saying in these areas. So let's pray. God would help us to understand His Word together. Let's go. Father, tonight we ask that we would not come to your word with our own preconceived ideas and rule, let them rule over your word. But by your spirit and through your word, you would shape us to understand spirituality and the gifts that you've given us and the way church works through your eyes. We pray tonight we come away being molded and shaped by your word that we might live truly spiritual lives. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. If I were to ask you, what does a truly spiritual gathering look like? What ideas pop into your mind? Let, let me just, just call them out. What, is a tr- what would happen in a truly spiritual gathering? First thing that comes into your head, go, call out. Miracles, what else? People be loving, other ideas, just keep... Okay, there's tongue speaking. Reading the Bible. Who's that guy? Excited by God, there's some kind of emotional response. Yeah, what else? Do you, truly spiritual. What, what what comes in your head? Evangelism. Evangelism. Yeah, yeah. They don't necessarily have to be right ideas. You could say wrong stuff as well. It's okay. I judge you right now. Jumping, Just, around. jumping around. Truly spiritual churches jump around. Okay. Jesus is there. Jesus is there. Like literally, like with hipster, <laughs> hipster glasses and beard. That's great. That's Wellington. Anyway. Okay, what do we think of when we think of the truly spiritual church? Tonight, uh, Paul is kind of summarizing the argument to say what a truly spiritual church looks like. We saw last week that true spirituality was about expressing the varied gifts God had given each member of the church in love. And we saw that that built up the church. And we'll see that unpacked a little bit more now. We'll see this, that edification, building up of one another is the purpose of church. It's why we come together in a gathering like this, to build one another up, to hear from the Word of God and then speak that Word to one another, build one another up as we gather around. That is how we worship God. We don't come to church to worship God. We come to church to build one another up, and that is how we worship God. We live all of life to worship God. There's nothing special about church. That's the time of worship. We worship Him in every area of life. Um, Romans 12.1, this is your spiritual act of worship, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Well, in the context of this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul's been contrasting two particular gifts. Last week, you would have remembered, in the blue corner, we had prophecy, and in the red corner, we had tongues. Paul was contrasting these two gifts together, and not because they're the only two gifts to worry about in the church, but because they had a specific application for that church in Corinth. 
there were specific issues going on about the role of miracles, the role of tongues and, and the role of prophecy within the church. And they were a church that was infatuated with the miraculous, the special, the amazing. And so Paul uses this comparison here of these two gifts so that we can learn key principles of why we gather. They're applied to us as we see these principles of what the gathering should look like. So come with me, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then is the conclusion, brothers? <laughs> Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. That's the purpose of church. As we saw last week, building one another up is the key to why we gather. Today, we've come to church to edify to build one another up. And sometimes when we think of what that looks like, we think, oh, building one another up, that just sounds boring. Like, you know, it sounds like something you do at a gym. You go and you just build up your muscles. You're like, I don't know. It, might, it doesn't sound... But, but it's not just this boring kind of building one another up or speaking just head stuff. There's lots of goodness coming together. Did you see what the psalm, what, what he says here? Each brings a psalm, a, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. There's stuff going on that's building one another up. What we see firstly is church is an every member thing. It's not just me to you. And you encourage me as you sit there and you're writing, as you're shaking your head, going, that's not right. I'm like, what did I say? No, that's helpful at times. Uh, it's an every member thing. We've come to express the gifts God's given us to build each other up. Now, I don't think everyone should come prepared with a psalm. That list there is not like everyone comes. Like, who came today with a psalm prepared? Anyone write out a psalm this week? Oh, guys. You're letting us down, right? Or, or a teaching. You know, who's, who's got a sermon in their back pocket they're ready to give today? Right, what are you doing? Read your Bibles. Like, no, it's not saying that everyone's got to come with all of these things. It's, it's saying, really, that this gathering was a rich expression of the variety of the gifts God had given. And the key principle behind this gathering as they came together to, to sing a psalm that would build one another up because of the words they sung or, or to have a teaching explaining the truth of the gospel and what the apostles had said, or whether that be a tongue, an interpretation or a revelation from God, that was happening here. The key principle was the building up of one another. What's key? Not what these things are, but how we build one another up. That is key. So then how do we use these two gifts? The red corner and the blue corner. What do they look like? Tongues and prophecy in the church. Well, last week, I'm going to summarize really quickly. Well, I talked about it more last week, but what is this gift of tongues or languages? Let me tell you five things I said. You may not be able to write them down. Number one, tongues is speaking to God. It's us to Him, not Him to us. Two, tongues is... Is, is, is in this instance here, is a language not understood by the speaker or hearer. Unless you have the gift of interpretation. You don't understand what you're saying. Paul says, I pray in my spirit and I want my, my mind to be um, praying as well. But this idea of speaking in, in tongues is a way you're speaking in your spirit is kind of what he's saying. You don't understand what's going on. Three, tongues did not build up the church. Don't build up the church. They do nothing for the main purpose of why we gather unless they're interpreted. Four, tongues are not to be banned. We should not say that's wrong or sinful and you shouldn't, you shouldn't do tongues. Paul says we should not ban tongues. Five, historically they have been a sign of God's judgment. That if there was someone speaking a different language amongst you, it was a sign that God was judging you. 
Uh, that if people came into church and people were speaking in languages no one understood, they'd be like, you guys are crazy, what's going on? This is not a, a sign that's helpful. It's like, what, what, what is happening here? Who are these people? So there's five things that we saw about this thing called tongues. So does this gift of tongues have any use in the gathering? Should we be doing it right here now? Well, does it have any use? Yes, but look at verse 27. If any person speaks in another language or a tongue, there should only be two or at the most three, each in turn. And someone must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, that person should keep silent in the church. Speak to himself and God. Tongues only has a use if it's interpreted. It only has use in the gathering if it's interpreted, let me be clear. It can only build up others if we understand what's going on. That was Paul's point last week. Paul doesn't outright ban it, and neither should we. However, I think we put more value on the gift of tongues than the Scriptures actually afford. We think there's something special about it. We're like, whoa, they spoke in a tongue. I want to know what they said. And if someone interprets it, we're like, oh, I want to know what the interpretation is. And then if we get the interpretation, it's if, whoa, there's something amazing that they've said. But remember, tongues is from us to God. It's not from God to us. It's not revelation coming down. It's a way of speaking to God. And so if someone has spoken in this tongue to God and then someone interprets, it's just like hearing what someone said. Interpret it. We don't suddenly go, whoa, we must do it because it was a translated tongue or an interpreted tongue. It then kind of fits, I think, into this realm of prophecy that you test what they're actually saying to see if it was legit. Tongues interpreted just becomes prophecy in his way. It's not like, oh, this is what we must do. There's no need to run and say, wow, this is amazing. It's just when it's interpreted, it's actually useful. It moves from being useless to something of use. Paul says, don't focus on it in the gathering. His aim here is not for us to go, yeah, we need more tongue speaking in church. He's like, guys, stop worrying about this. His aim in this is to limit it. Stop it. Stop talking so much in these tongues and, and focusing on that. Two people, at the most three, no more. No more. Otherwise, that person is to keep silent. Now, interesting, that keeping silent there of the tongue speaker is the same word used of keeping silent for women in the church in a little bit later. Hold on to that thought. These people who speak the tongues are to have the gifts under control. None of this, I've, I've got a tongue, I've got to say it now because God's given me a revelation. It's us to God, not God to us. It's, it's controllable. Paul says that the, first, the fourth person You've got one, two, three tongue speakers. The fourth one, doesn't matter if you've got a tongue, shut up. Don't speak it. It's too much. No more. You, you have it under control. And that's where we come across uh, the next point, which will really control the rest of the sermon, help us to understand what it's about. We come across a principle that Paul has in the gathering of order. The order principle, or the principle of order. The truly spiritual gathering it's not to be crazy off the walls, kind of everyone going psycho, doing their own thing. It's to have order. Not only in people speaking in tongues and then if there's an interpretation, only an interpretation, but with this gift of prophecy too, both of them are to be ordered. Look at verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. Same word as applied to women in a moment. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are under control of the prophets. 
since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. First thing to note, this is not an exhaustive list of everything that happens in the church, the things that are spoken of here. A little earlier, we heard of a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, or a prophecy. That, that's not like the list you can choose from. The smorgasbord options of church, the buffet, right? It's all I can pick from. Like here, we don't hear about the Lord's Supper or communion. You read about that in Acts 2. You don't hear about prayer, why they gathered in Acts 2 in the early church. That was, that was a key part of what they were doing. Or, or the reading of Scripture, like Paul says that Timothy is to commit himself to the public teaching and reading of Scripture and to prayer. Those other things are seen as characteristics in, in Timothy and in Acts, but they're not mentioned here. Uh, it's not, that's because this is not a, a full-on list of everything that we can choose from in church. But what Paul is showing is a principle that is to be applied to all churches. The gathering exists, verse 31, I hope it's on the screen, yep, so that everyone may learn and be encouraged. Built up to learn and be encouraged. The order principle is what drives the gathering. It needs to be order so that people can learn, so that you can understand what's going on. Now, I don't know what family dinners are like at your place or what they were like growing up, but I can tell you what they're like at our place. Pretty crazy, right? Come 5.30, our kids are like hungry, become ravenous wolves, and they're like wanting, I want this, what about that? Or what about this happening? He doesn't this do this. And there's just noise everywhere. I don't know if you've been in family gatherings like that. You swing past our place, 5.30, any night. You see what it's like? It's like, and like sometimes Sarah and I are like, can you just please stop? Like one person speak to me at once, not everyone spewing at me at the same time with these words from all day. It's like, calm down, stop it. Imagine a church where everyone came along and used all the gifts you've been given all at once. Everyone starts talking and saying, guess what I learned this week? And everyone's saying the same thing at once. It's just like, what? What is going on? Ah! All the introverts amongst us kind of crawl down into a little ball and rock in the corner. <laughs> Take me now, Lord. Are you coming back today? And all the extroverts are loving it because I think everyone's listening to them, but really no one can hear anything because there's just so much noise going on. You're like, what is this? No one's going to learn anything. No one's going to be encouraged because it's just all a mess. I was in a church recently, a great church, and the guy at the front said, why don't we just take a moment uh, for everyone just to pray to God and praise Him uh, for something that He's done. Just all at once, everyone praise God. And everyone started praying out loud to God at once, and I was just like, ah! Like, it was really weird. And just like, oh, what is going on? We're not doing this together. It's a little individual people to God rather than us together building one another up. It does make me wonder. You know, sometimes you're in church and someone will say, oh, let's just pray quietly to yourself. Uh, why do we do that when we gather? We can pray quietly to ourselves at home. Or as a church, we should be someone leading us so we can say amen. And I agree, that's why they lead us in prayer, so we can be encouraged and built up, so we can hear what's going on. The reason there needs to be order in the church is because well, it practically helps us to be encouraged and understand what's going on. That's one. But there's another reason that I think is even more profound. The reason that we get that we are to be having order in the church is right there at the end. Verse 33, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. The reason we have order isn't merely a pragmatic reason, but it's grounded in who God is. God is a God of order. Let's explore this for a second and see how this kind of plays out. He's not chaotic. When He created the world, He brought order out of chaos. It was a formless void and He created 
all the things that exist. He, he made the, 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 the dry land and the sky and he separated them. He, he gave the, the waters bounds and said this far but no other. He, he took what was formless and void and gave it form and order and made it that way. He's ordered the world because that is what he's like. And then he fills creation with the right thing in the right place. Like imagine if he'd gone, all right, okay, we've got the world, we've got the sky, the land, the sea, it's all kind of set up. Now I'm going to come and create animals. I'll get an elephant. And where will I put that? I'll stick it in the sky. That's not going to end well for anything on the ground, like a falling elephant. And look, Dumbo, it doesn't work, right? It can't really fly. It's a fairy, fairy tale, a fairy tale, <laughs> right? And imagine if he did that. It would just be weird and chaotic. Imagine if he got chickens and said, right, I'm going to make the chickens and they can live under the ground. Like there's some sort of potato and they just grow eggs and they go, boop, and they just come up out of the It doesn't work because they can't eat. God is ordered. He's, he's, the world works the way that he has made it. Not only within creation, but within relationships too. He made Adam and Eve as humanity to obey him. They were to listen to him. There was order within their relationship. Adam and Eve didn't go up to God and go, hey, look, I've got a few tips for you. Like, you know, snakes, you shouldn't have made them talking. That, that would have been a good thing to say. That doesn't happen. He, he, God sets the rules. Adam is responsible to lead his wife. So the moment in the garden that, that Eve eats the, the apple, the tree, it's not an apple, the fruit, whatever it was. Uh, the moment Eve eats that, and then Adam eats some too, God comes to Adam because he's responsible. What does Adam say? God's like, what have you done? Have you eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? In Genesis 3. And what is, straight away, quick as a flash, Adam, he's great at it. She made me do it. Eve, what have you done? Adam, you should have been working alongside, leading your wife, but you didn't. I gave you the command, you didn't leave. And now she has led you astray. The opposite has happened. Eve, what were you thinking? What did she say? Snake made me do it. So the creation that I made you, Adam and Eve, to rule over under my rule, the creation misordered and spoke to you, Eve, who then told Adam to disobey me. It's a complete reversal of the order God had created. God is an ordered God, and the order that he creates comes out of who he is. The church is to reflect that order. We're to reflect that order in the way that we express love to one another. So it is with tongues and with prophecy. Two or three not everyone and not all at once, because that'll be crazy. Now, some come along this passage and they think that everyone should prophesy. Uh, we think, because it says here, that the all can prophesy uh, one after another. But I don't think the all here means everyone. <laughs> We're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We're going to let the, the clear interpret the unclear. So when Paul here says that all can prophesy one by one, he doesn't negate what he just said two chapters earlier. Do all prophesy? No! Not all prophesy. He's not mixed up. He didn't kind of have a break between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Like, oh, I'll finish and I'll come back next year when my second sabbatical's on. And I'll kind of finish it then. He's written this together and here we have the letter. No, the emphasis here is on one by one, taking your turns so that all, and I think the all is probably all who are gifted with prophecy, whatever that is. We'll get there soon. All kinds of men, men, women, slave, free, it's a picture, a broader picture. I'm not saying everyone necessarily prophesies at that moment. So, what is prophecy? And all I'm going to say now is you asked for this. Last week, you asked for it. What is prophecy? 
Let's spend some time, a little bit of time, thinking through what prophecy is. We don't get a clear definition. Uh, Paul knew what it was, the Corinthians knew what it was, but for us, it's not so clear, because he doesn't really define it. It's probably um, a broad range of things, not just one thing where we can say, okay, prophecy is where these eight things all align perfectly. That's it, that was, that was prophecy, but that one wasn't. Probably seems like a, a broader range of things that can happen. A little bit like teaching is a broader range of things that can happen. Is teaching just preaching from the front? No, we teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. So as we sing, we're teaching one another. So singing, in some sense, is a, is a form of teaching. But teaching uh, that authority in front of a mixed congregation is a different form of teaching, but it's still part of teaching. So I think prophecy is a broader range. We can't say that is exactly prophecy. What things do we have from, from the passage? Well, here's a few. Number one, I'm going to tell you a few. I don't know how many numbers there are. Let's go. Prophecy edifies, encourages, and consoles. 14 verse 3. The result of prophecy is that people are built up, they're encouraged, and they're consoled. Number two, prophecy seems to have some sense of revelation coming from God to us. Tongues, us to God. Prophecy, God to us in some way. Have a look at 14 verse 6. But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in other languages, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? It seems here that some sort of revelation from God or knowledge of God's word and will and teaching and prophecy, they all fit in the same sort of camp for Paul. That that this prophecy is this, maybe God saying something or working in us to show us something. Now, I want to be very clear. It's not classed as the same type of revelation from God as Scripture or as Paul speaks. It's not in the same because, point number three, prophecy is weighed. Look at verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. Paul's writings, Paul's Scriptures, they were not weighed. Uh, He he, he was an eyewitness. He, He was an eyewitness to the risen Jesus. He writes Scripture. When he writes this stuff down, it's God speaking to us. But when we get to the idea of prophecy, it's weighed. No one comes up to Paul and says, well, this bit sounded right, Paul, but that bit didn't. Or to John. I know, John, you were one of the inner three that knew Jesus really well, but, you know, I'm not quite sure everything you said in Revelation. It's a bit spacey. I think we're going to kind of push some of it away. No, you don't get to do that. That, that. that script is God speaking by the Spirit through these people in an authoritative sense that becomes Scripture. Prophecy doesn't get turned into Scripture. It's not like the book of extra stuff God had said through other people. Well, it does happen. It's called the Book of Mormon, and it's wrong. It's not weird. There's, there's no geographical places found there. It's someone writing down, this is what God said when he went to America. And it's just it's not legit. Whereas what we have in the Scriptures is what those who knew him well who were sent out Matthew 28 go make disciples of all nations you disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit and I'll be with you to the very end of the age the apostles were sent out by Jesus they are unique no one else gets to come along and say I have the authority word of God if they do do that they're a cult leader don't listen to them and I'll show you why in a moment prophecy should be weighed that means that prophecy will have in it some things that are valuable and some things that are worthless. It's weighed. There are some things like, yeah, that's, that's probably right, and that's a... No, that's not it. That, that's not that. It'll be a mixture, hence why it needs to be evaluated. So how do we evaluate prophecy? 
well, it'd be great if there was like an awesome checklist. We could just go through and check everything off and run it through the grid and we'd come out quite easily. There's not that, but there's a few places we can go to. Uh, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says this. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things and hold on to what is good. What do we do? Well, we hold on to what is good. And everyone says, but what's good? <laughs> how, do we, how do we know that? Right. But, but the thing we need to see here, Paul expects that prophecy is tested and weighed. How do we do that? Well, John helps us out a little bit in 1 John 4. Have a look. Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. You're like, brilliant. Here we go. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. The expectation here for John is that knowing whether this spirit or this revelation or this prophecy confesses that Jesus has come from God and lived in the flesh, that's how you're about to tell whether this prophecy is legit or not, whether this spirit is legit or not. I take it that what this prophecy is then will have something to do, perhaps, with Jesus come in the flesh, that Jesus has come and that He is Lord. Do you remember, 1 Corinthians 12, the Lordship of Jesus is the spiritual person who lives with Jesus as Lord. The mechanism to test it seems to assume prophecy concerns things about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension and Lordship. I take it, prophecy in a biblical sense shouldn't be about the trivial but about the big things of God and how they fit into his plan and how we should live in response to them is God really concerned with whether you'll have a good year this year and a bad year next year is that something that I need to know someone comes and says oh I've got a prophecy for you that um, you are going to be an amazing teacher and you're going to have all these people follow you you're like so what how does that fit in the plan of big what how are we going to change because of that well, do, do I teach the Word of God? Yes. Why? Well, because God tells us to teach the Word of God. What use is that? Is it any good to us? Someone comes to you and says, man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. And that you and we need to make sure we're living in light of Jesus' return and Jesus' judgment. And I feel like you as a church or you as a person need to recognize the reality of God's judgment. Is that going to change how you live now? Absolutely. Am I listening to God's word that has been spoken before? This thing that this person is saying is helping me to live in line with what matters. Jesus is Lord. He has come in the flesh. He is from God. I'm going to serve him. I think we call so much fluff prophecy that is not. The other thing we see with prophecy is that it must align with what the apostles first taught. It must align with what the apostles first taught, with a pattern of sound teaching that Paul passed on to Timothy. Have a look at 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1.13. Paul says, Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God, through the Holy Spirit who lives in us, that good thing entrusted to you. He doesn't say, Timothy, sit back, wait for God to say new stuff, to give you new ideas and to speak new things thoughts into your world he says hold on to what i taught you pass that on the spirit who lives in us will hold that good thing that good deposit that apostolic witness 
of who Jesus is and what he's done and how we respond to him as Lord for us. Prophecy must be tested against those truths. So what do we know about prophecy then from outside of 1 Corinthians? We're going to step back a bit and think through prophecy throughout the Bible. Um, Let's have a look at a couple of quick places, a little bit of the Old Testament, and then we'll come back to how they're applied in the church. That's where we're going. Is everyone okay with me? Yep. Yep. Mental break. Revelation 19. We get a picture of prophecy in some senses. Revelation 19, verse 9. Uh, Here is someone from the throne room of God, whether it might be an angel, uh, it may be one of the elders around the thrones. We're not quite sure who it is, but they're speaking to John. They say this, 19, verse 9. Then he said to me, write, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, these, are, these words of God are true. And then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the testimony about Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You have the testimony about Jesus. And the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's something going on there that it's pointing to Christ. 1 Timothy 1.18. Listen to what um, Paul says here. We'll see a bit of a predictive element to some sense of, of prophecy. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by them you may strongly engage in battle. Here Paul is talking to Timothy, this, this, this young guy. And he's saying, live this out. Live the life that people have prophesied about you. Now, what was that? We don't know. But there's a sense in which I think maybe someone has said, this guy might be someone who'd be a good teacher. This guy might be a mighty speaker of God. They had a sense of that in some way, whether that be from God or some other way. And here, Paul is saying that they are prophecies made about him. They have some future-looking point that this person might be useful for this task, perhaps. The task was holding to the faith, strongly engaging in battle, pointing people to Jesus. But prophecy can have a predictive element in that way. In Acts 11... Uh, we, we hear about this guy called Ag- Agabus. Agabus, great name for a cat. You could try it. <laughs> I'm, I'm stopping dad jokes. There you go. Acts 11.28, just for tonight. Um, then one of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the time of Claudius. Now, the word here isn't the word for prophecy. It's the word for sign, a prediction, a foretelling. He foretold that there would be a severe famine. Some future element to that. Um, Now, it doesn't say prophecy here, but in Acts 21, Agabus is called a prophet. Uh, That thing actually happened. It came about. It was legit. So look at Acts 21, verse 10. While we were staying there many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us. He took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into Gentile hands. When we heard this, both we and the local people begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So there's a prophecy here. Agabus has said that he's taken Paul's belt, he's bound Agabus' own hands and feet and said the Holy Spirit is saying that the man who owns this belt will be bound in Jerusalem. 
And the picture then is people beg him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't do this, don't continue in that way. But look what Paul does, verse 13. And Paul replied, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? (laughs) For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we stopped talking and simply said, the Lord's will be done. So the prophecy comes true, but the interpretation of that or the kind of the application is don't go to Jerusalem because you'll be bound and it'll be bad for you. Yeah, it was bound, it was, it was bad for Paul, but Paul doesn't care. Paul's like, yeah, I'm in this, I don't care if I die. I'm going to Jerusalem no matter what. Paul agrees with the prophecy, but doesn't agree with Agabus's application or those around him. Right prediction, wrong application. Prophecy doesn't necessarily mean we have to obey what it says. Paul doesn't. In fact, in this situation, Paul's saying, I know the reality of what it is to be a Christian. You're telling me that this bad thing will happen. Yep, sure, great. I don't care. I'm going anyway. It doesn't change his direction. It says, he says, I'm going to keep serving Jesus with my all. And he does that. Well, there's a quick survey of New Testament prophecy. Uh, Let's flick back and see what Old Testament prophecy is like. So in 2 Peter 10, we get a a description of those who were prophets or, or, or prophecies of the Old Testament. We see this, 2 Peter verse 1, sorry. 2 Peter 1 verse 20. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy of Scripture, talking about Old Testament prophets, comes from one's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, more so they were saying, thus says the Lord. This is what God is saying to the people. The prophets wrote, in line with what had been spoken previously through Moses, saying, if you continue this way, God is telling you, He will smash you. He will wipe you out. He will speak to you by people of foreign nations. He will judge you. It was in line with what God had said and predicting what would happen and saying it was from God. But there were false prophets in the Old Testament as well. So, let's have a look at Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. If a prophet or someone who has dreams arises among you and proclaims a sign or a wonder to you, and that sign or wonder he has promised you comes about, so the prophecy works, he proclaims a wonder or a sign or something that would happen, and it happens, but he then says, let's follow other gods which you've not known and let us worship them. Do not listen to that prophet's words or to that dreamer. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You must follow the Lord your God and fear Him. You must keep His commands and listen to His voice. You must worship Him and remain faithful to Him. Someone can tell you something that happened. They spoke something that was true. They said something that no one else could have known. It must be from God. No, it mustn't. No, it mustn't. It needs to be in line with God's word was always the picture of Old Testament prophecy. In line with what had already been spoken. Listen to what happens next. Verse 5. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death. Kill them. How dare they speak on my behalf, says God. They should be put to death because he has urged a rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. Do you know who you're messing with? pretending to speak for God when God didn't say that? Do you know what's going on? This is a serious thing. You're claiming to be God and telling people what to do, and if you get that wrong, dead. Maybe we should up the stakes for New Testament prophecy. 
Maybe we should say, get it wrong, we kill you. Maybe then we'd get a bit more clarity about whether God really said it or not. The death penalty was for false prophecy in the Old Testament. But oddly, in the New Testament, it's just weighed. Seems to be some sort of difference with New Testament prophecy to old. We weigh it, we work out what's right or not. We don't listen to the stuff that's, that's wrong, we weigh that. In the Old Testament, we're like, you're dead. You know, like, it's a bit of a difference, you know? I'm not really putting my hand up for prophecy in the Old Testament if I'm not dead sure that this is what God had said in the New Testament. It, it seems to be, to be weighed. Have a look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and we start to see a similarity about the way Old Testament prophecy was treated with the way that New Testament teaching is treated. It's kind of like in the Old Testament, we used to we treat prophets that way because they were speaking of what God said. But in the New Testament, we, te- we, we treat teachers almost the same way because they are speaking for what God said. Look at 2 Peter 2 verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there are, will be false teachers among you. See that? There were false prophets among the people in the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you. It's like Paul is saying there's some likeness. I'm not saying they're the same. We expel false teachers from the congregation. That's what Paul says. Expel them. Get them out. False teachers should not be among you. Walk with them for a little first, but if they're going to keep spewing out stuff that's not true, get them out. They're false teachers. Get away. But prophecy is weighed. So, what is New Testament prophecy? I think we need to be really careful not to call it God's direct word to us, like Scripture. It's, it's not Scripture. It's not to be written down. It's weighed. The idea that you get kind of direct quotes from the Lord, it's, it's incredibly rare, even in the New Testament. It's not Scripture. But I think it is God revealing things to us concerning his plan of reconciling the world to himself. Not new things, but things in line with what he's been saying before, concerning the lordship of Christ, in line with what the apostles taught and applied to a certain situation or or, or things that are happening and going on. I think we need to be careful and not say, I feel like God is telling me to say to you. And that moment, we're kind of saying, it feels like, this is like scripture. If I go up to someone and say, God is telling you that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through Him. I can say that with absolute confidence because the Scriptures say it. That is God. God is saying this to you right now. But I can't say, look, I, I feel like God is saying to you that you need to do this or that in the same way of confidence. I think a better way to talk about this thing of of maybe speaking what someone is feeling towards applying or God is saying to them towards applying the truth of what's been going on is to say, look, I feel burdened. I feel convicted that this is what we need to do. I don't know. I was reading the scriptures and I just felt like I needed to say to you that this is is important. We need to keep away from the danger of saying God said. Then we can test it. If it can't be tested against Scripture, then I want to say, I don't think it matters. So what? For in the Scriptures we have everything we need to be complete in Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. I think modern preaching includes prophecy. I'm not saying teaching or preaching is prophecy. I'm saying it includes it. As we teach the Bible, we're applying it. To the church. Now, sometimes there are things that are there that you feel like, ah, oh, I feel like we really need to say this. And does that come from me or from God? 
I'm not going to say God told me to say to you. I don't think he necessarily did tell me with that clarity, but at times, there's points where you're like, I really feel like this is what it's saying to us as a church. There's been times, I remember one of them, um, that I was preaching through Deuteronomy 12. I was at St. Luke's in the morning, and I'd written the sermon. I was pretty much full text. I preached from mostly full text notes. And I'm, I'm there, and I was explaining how uh, when we're left to our own devices, we make horrible choices. And God's saying that without God, we're kind of, we've got no hope. And it just hit me there and then of what, what a horrible choices I would make if I was left on my own. Just overwhelmed with like, Rowan, you're a clown. You can't even get half your, your life right. And it just, I don't, what was that? Was God going at this point, Rowan, this is for you. It's all for me. But here God was speaking in a sense to go, you need to make sure that you put Jesus first, that he is the king and that you don't think that you've got life sorted, that you can be dependent on yourself. You need to trust Him. And another um, a time, a friend of mine's mum came to me and she said, look, I was just reading the Bible the other day and I just felt like I wanted to let you know this verse. The verse came at a time that I was kind of uh, thinking about which girl do I date and I wasn't I was thinking about girls rather than God, bad mix. Girls are great, right? But, um, and, and the verse was, I can't remember what the verse was, but it basically said, put me first. And I was like... Yeah, that was for me right now. Yeah, God is saying that in some sense for me right now. However it is expressed, Paul's saying it's to be weighed. And it's to be expressed in the gathering in an orderly manner. Now that order includes order among relationships. So have a look at verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. How popular do you reckon those two verses are in our society today? My take is that as you're sitting here, you're cringing. Oh, is, is that like legit? Is that really what God is saying? Women should be silent in the church? Surely not. Surely there's something going on here that we can kind of see because that's just, that's crazy. That's so old-fashioned. That's so just, I, I thought that the you know, quality of women changed this. Feminism gave us some helpful stuff. What is this? I want to say, there's a fantastic article, not to be read now, but a fantastic article in your outline that um, our MTS apprentices, Ming and Angela, put together. Um, you have a read of it later. It's got some helpful points in there. You can check it out. But the question we need to ask is, can women speak in church? It's what Zywa did before, up the front, reading the Bible. Should we be like, ma, sorry, Zywa, we'll, we'll chat later about that? I mean, it, you know, okay, awkward. How do we understand this? Well, firstly, if it did say that women should be silent in the church and that's what it meant, that's what we do, right? God is God. He is the one who's created order. If He has said this is the way we need to work, then that's what we need to do. We, we don't just go, well, I think I know better. That's what Adam and Eve did. How did that work out? Not great. But I don't think that is what's on view here, not in its full spectrum. And there's a number of reasons why people say that. I think most of them are wrong and one's right. Some people say, no, 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 this, it's, it's cultural reasons that it says that. Like women in this church, they were too noisy. They were talking too much. You know, the women were talk, talk, talk. And it was like, oh, we can't concentrate. You know, and so it was, it was just too noisy. So we said, right, all women in churches everywhere need to be silent in the church because we just can't hear over you. 
Now, at that point, I'm like, really? Like, this is a Mediterranean culture. Have you ever met Mediterranean men? They talk lots too, right? You know, if, he's, if he's saying they're talking too much, why doesn't he say, right, no, no noisy men either? Like, why is he just applying it to women? Are there really no noisy men in the world? I think they are. My wife would say she lives with one. Some say it's because women were uneducated. That's why they need to be silent in the church, because they don't really have too many smarts about them. That's what some say. But I want to say at that point, then why does he not say, oh, uneducated women and uneducated men? Were all men educated? Every single one of them? Was there really no educated women? The idea that there was that all women in the first century were uneducated is just nonsense, historically. You can't hold that. So I don't think that's, that's, that's it as well. Others come along and they say, maybe the women in Corinth were trying to mislead the men. They had some doctrinal ideas that they were kind of saying, no, this is what we need to do when taking the men astray. And so Paul's walked in and said, enough women, no more talking. You're leading all the men astray. This is not good. Silence in the church. No more talking. Well, the problem with that is, Paul says this is, this is his rule, this is his order within all the churches. Uh, and if that's the case, Paul's picked, there might be three or four or five or ten women in this church that have kind of got doctrinal error. And because of that, he says, that's it. You've done the dash for every woman everywhere in every church in the world. That's not right. Is it? That's incredibly sexist. It's not what he's, what he's saying here at all. If that was the case, he'd be saying, no heresy. Silence the heretics. Because let's be honest, men can be heretics as well, right? Right, yes. <laughs> Amen. Now, the reason why I think women aren't to be totally silent in the churches is because Paul says they prophesy and pray in the churches, just two chapters, three chapters earlier. 1 Corinthians 11, women are to prophesy and pray in the church in an appropriate way, expressing their womanhood, um, submissive to the men in the order that God has set up there, but still to do that within the church gathering. Again, I don't think Paul's fallen asleep and come back next year and gone, oh, I forgot I said that. Like, this, is, this is his order in all the churches. So what is he talking about? What is he saying women are to remain silent about? I think the silent part comes because of the, the passage's context. What's the context? Prophecy must be weighed. There must be order in the church. Two or three are to speak and then it is to be weighed to work out what is good and what is kept. But women are to be silent in the weighing of prophecy. I think it's got to do with the weighing of prophecy. That's the thing they are to be silent in. Uh, women can and should prophesy and pray, but they should not be involved in the public weighing of prophecy, whether this is right or wrong, in the mixed gathering of church. So many loaded words in that, but uh, they should not be weighing prophecy uh, in the mixed gathering in church, working out what is right or wrong. Uh, there's some great reasons as to why and some places to look up uh, in the middle paragraph there that Angela has written in that article. It'd be great to have a look at. If you want to ask me more questions in question time, we'll go into that a bit more. Should women be teaching and, and weighing the prophecy of men? I think yes, that's fine. It's not because women are dumb. It's not because women don't get it. It's about expressing order of relationship. That God set men up to lead women, to have the responsibility to carry the load of working out what happens. Who brought sin into the world? What does the Bible say? Who is the person who brought sin into the world? Adam. Sin came into the world through one man, Romans 5, Adam. Came in through Adam. But Eve sinned first. No, no, Adam was responsible. He carries the responsibility. He was the one that didn't pass it on. 
That's part of the load of being a guy. Guys, be responsible. And so here, the reason that Paul gives is because of the law. What law? You know, uh, well, every other time Paul talks about order within relationships of men and women and teaching, he actually speaks of Genesis 20. Genesis 20, uh, sorry, Genesis 2, 20 to 24. Genesis 2, 20 to 24, about how God created us, the created order that's there. In 1 Corinthians 11, he quotes it explicitly. Man was made first and then woman for man. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 13, where he talks about teaching in the church, that men should be the ones who are teaching in a mixed gathering, not women having responsibility for the teaching in that place. Because man was made first and woman for man, a pattern has been laid down, an order that God made, and it is good. Don't believe the lie. Men and women are different, and that is great. Imagine if everyone in the world thought like a man. How bad would that be? I love the diversity of the way that we think differently. I imagine if everyone in the world thought like a woman. I, I can't understand that. I don't know how that would work. But that's because I'm a guy. And there's a great complementarity that we have together. And we want to celebrate that, not iron out our differences, not say we are all the same. We are not the same. We're equal, equally created in God's image, equal in dignity, equal in worth, yet God has given different roles in the order of relationship. Paul understands women here to be subject to men in the, in the weighing of prophecy and in the teaching of the church. And in this Corinthian prophecy context, you, you couldn't have a woman weighing someone else's prophecy in, in, the, in the gathering without expressing that she is over other men. And that's a misordering of the way God has made things. There's an extraordinarily strong case that Paul says that women are not to teach Men in a mixed gathering, 1, 1 Timothy 2 is really strong on that. And I think the weighing of prophecies fits under that function in the public gathering of a church. Okay, so I want to finish with one warning, and this is a quick point. There is more to say about the role of men and women. It's not just women can't do this and men can the Bible talks about husbands laying down their life for their wife. It talks about um, men treating younger women as sisters and, old, and, and, and women treating women as sisters. There are a whole heap of different relationships that we have. And we don't have time to go into those details now, but it's far more rich than we think. God is just saying, no women. God is anti-women. No, He's protecting you. He's not letting the responsibility lay on your shoulders. That's something that men need to wear. So men, a side point, wear that responsibility. Lead, would you? Make sure that men are people who are weighing prophecy. When teaching happens from the front as well, you're thinking through, is this right or not? Uh, women should be thinking that too. It's not like we just sit there and go, oh, okay, whatever he says. No, 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 you wait and talk through it. You, just, you don't go in, the, ah, that's wrong, Rowan, I think you're wrong there. Or, it, there's, there's an expression of relationship as we do that. But guys, get yourselves, and women, everyone, get yourselves to the point where you know the Scriptures, and particularly guys, lead. Take responsibility. Suck it up, princess, and actually lead. Here's the warning, 14, verse 36. Paul then says this, to this church, did the Word of God originate from you? Or did it come to you only? Do you think you're so special, Corinthian church, that you've got the only right way here? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write, what I write to you is the Lord's command. 
But if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. In other words, if someone comes along and says, look, I've got a new word from God. This is the way we should now work. I'm an apostle. I can lead this kind of church or this movement with this new way forward. Paul says, cult leader. Paul says, who do you think you are? You think you're spiritual? You think you're a prophet? The spiritual person, the prophet, listens to me. Paul's authority as an apostle here stands so much higher than any other prophecy because he can make acceptance of his words the necessary criteria for working out whether someone is spiritual or not. No one else can do that. No other person today. The apostles could because they had that deposit that was passed on. No one gets to say, I have a personal revelation from God that contradicts Scripture and here's how it is. No one gets to say, oh, this is how it's definitely interpreted today and we must stick with this view because I'm an apostle or I have this special revelation. No, we, we all have access to the Word of God. That's why Tyndale died. He was translating the Bible into English so we could understand the Word of God. Test what I say. Test what Lachlan says. Test what everyone says up the front. We sit under the Word of God. So, what are we to do? How do we be spiritual? Verse 39. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in other languages or tongues, but everything must be done decently and in order. The spiritual life, the spiritual church is the church that expresses the gifts that God has given to build one another up with a desire to apply the truths of what the apostles had said so that we might live with Jesus as Lord, that we might obey him, that we might love one another. The spiritual church sits under God's word and seeks to love and build up because God has spoken through the apostles. And he now uses us to build one another in love. Okay. Why don't I pray that that will be our focus and then answer some questions until we run out of breath. Father, thanks so much for your word. It's easy to come along with our own ideas and our own views. I ask for me and for everyone here that we would keep shaping our view of what these things are and how we live by your word. Pray that as things get our heckles up, the way they contradict the culture that we live in, that we would let your word set what is right and good and we would see the goodness of your word and the order that you've created and that we would be a church that is so eager to live your way and express the gifts you've given us in love, that we would be doing that. We ask that we would never wander from the truth of what your word says, that we'd never be be dazzled by some amazing prophecy or miraculous sign, but we would hear clearly the most important sign, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We would see him as Lord and be so captured by what Jesus has done that we live for him like Paul. We live as someone who says, it doesn't matter what happens to me, it matters how I use my gifts for the good of building up the church and others. We pray tonight, Lord, you would give us a clear picture of who Jesus is that by your spirit and through your word, we would live for him. Amen. Okay. He needs a Coke. All right, let's go with some questions. Here we go. Great. Question number one, what is the correct denomination? Are we meant to have denominations in the first place? Great question. Uh, there are no denominations given biblically. 
Um, there's local churches and the heavenly church, those gathered around the throne. Uh, are we meant to have denominations in the first place? I don't think that so. We're meant to have a local church where there are leaders, elders, overseers, teachers that are applying the Word of God and building one another up. And the local church is the, is the, is the entity that God has created. There you go. Next question. Uh, Joel 2 that Peter quotes in Acts 2 makes it sound like everyone will prophesy or have some experience of dreams and visions. Am I reading that right? What does that look like today? Yep, so if you want to flick to um, Acts 2, we'll, we'll get it quoted in... Uh, it's Acts, Acts 2.17. We'll read it in its context. We'll start from 14. Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and proclaimed to them, Men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this noise of everyone speaking in languages that, they didn't, um, that were in other people's languages all that time. Uh, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. Note to yourself, don't drink before nine. On the contrary... This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. So what's happening here is a fulfillment of what Joel said. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. God's spirit will be poured out on everyone, not just the kings, but on everyone. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will see visions, and so your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I'll even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days and they will prophesy. So there's, there's no distinction, even slaves, not just kings, slaves I'll display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean? Well, Peter tells us, Man of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. So that prophecy is talking about Jesus. Though he was delivering up, sorry, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he shows that it was pointing forward to what David said about him. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David, he's dead and buried. In other words, he wasn't talking about him there. And his tomb is with us to this day. Since David was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to see one of his descendants on his throne, 2 Samuel 7, 14. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. We're all witnesses of this. So what's he saying? These prophecies are pointing forward to the day that God will pour his spirit out on all people. As they spoke in tongues, we were seeing that this was the sign, the symbol that the spirit had been on more people than just the king's. And we see that the, the Spirit goes on the Jews from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Right, so I think the Joel 2 prophecy is pointing forward to the day that God would pour out His Spirit and people would see visions and see the fulfillment of the things that are happening and it all points to Jesus. What happens? The, the, the apostles have the Spirit of God. They stand up emboldened by the Spirit of God and they point to Jesus. So I think prophecy in this sense is pointing people to Jesus. It's saying, do you see that he is the one that this prophecy was talking about in that day? In that day that the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. The day of the Lord. The Lord has come. The Lord has come. And it lines up with pointing people to Jesus. So, come back if I haven't answered that enough to me later. Next question. 
I understand that in the Old Testament, idolatry and adultery also came with a death penalty. That doesn't seem to be the case in the New Testament. Does that mean the acts of adultery and idolatry have changed? Or is there some other reason why death penalties in the Old Testament are no longer enacted? Yeah, so there's a greater picture there that you see things changing from the old to the new. uh, In that uh, now in Christ, we see death is... um, Sorry, that that our sin is swallowed up in. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, there's there's a change between the two. There's definitely a change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And death penalties are not necessarily enacted in the way that we work from the Old Testament to the New. Uh, they're, not, they're not enacted in that way. So it could be that because we don't see prophets having the same penalty that they did before, uh, that's just a, a, an evidence of this happening, uh, of, the, of the change between the covenants. Um, the thing that I'd push back a little on is the way that Peter links those two together of Old Testament prophecy, false, teaching, false prophets and false teaching. It does seem to be some sort of link in that. Um, so yeah, I'll leave that one there. Question five, or next one. According to Deuteronomy 13, 1-5, one of the marks of false prophets is that they incite people to go against the commands of God. Doesn't that make sense? Make Jesus a false prophet, given that he sometimes said, you have heard the law said, but I tell to you. Yeah, it could be that, couldn't it? If Jesus wasn't God. If he's God, though, then he's actually saying, I'm actually showing you what this is talking about. I am the true prophet interpreting God's law to you. Uh, you know, you've heard the law has said, but I told you, you're living in certain ways, you've got to live this out properly. And when he says, I told you, he, he raises the bar. He goes, this is actually what I'm talking about. You've heard it said that if someone commits adultery, they'll be put to death. But I tell you, anyone that even looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, so it's in that section in Matthew that he's saying that. And I think we've got to go, yet yeah, Jesus is, is showing us the fulfillment of what these the Old Testament laws were about. He is them. He's the perfect Jew. He lives perfectly. He obeys the Old Testament. There's not one point that he fails at that. He shows us what they were really about and he's who they are all pointing to. So he is God. He is God in the flesh. Next question. What does it... Whoop. Yep. What does it look like to weigh prophecy at uni church? Seems that everyone is silent, not just the women. And prophecy... <laughs> is not weighed at all. That's great. Except that whoever just wrote that got their voice heard, right? Well, you went silent. So we have question time. That's a great way to kind of ask questions. I don't think it's the only place that that happens. I think prophecy is happening as we, as we discuss over supper, as we, as we go outside and go to dinner and chat about the things that we're learning. Um, I'm not saying this just bit here is prophecy. There's some parts of it that are, but also that we, 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 as we speak to one another, um, should we have a formal time of prophecy, whatever that is in, with its bounds? Um, well, I think we kind of do. We have that at the end of a series where we ask people to go, oh, look, how has God been speaking to you throughout this series? And we give people a roving mic and we, we talk about it. And at that point, if someone said something wrong, uh, it would be the, the responsibility of the guys here to go, sorry, I understand where you're coming from, but I think we actually meant this here. I'm not sure that's quite right. I think we should do that. Uh, I think that that has to happen. I don't think that's the role for women at that point to stand up and go, sorry, you're wrong at that point. Uh, Because I think that's not expressing the right order of relationship that God has within men and women that he's talking about. Not because I think there's anything negative about women. So I think that's one way that we do it. I think we do it in our connect groups. 
So we're gathering together in a connect group. I think there's, there's, a, there's a leader who is responsible for the conclusions of that group, who is a male, unless it's an all-women's group, in which that's fine. Um, and so at that point, we, we, we're kind of sharing what we think the Word is saying to one another and bouncing that round and talking about that in that sense. I do want to say, I don't think it's the role um, in even a connect group for a woman to, to go, actually, you're wrong. It is not saying that, it is saying this. Especially when there's men there. I think there's an expression of relationship that needs to show the right level of um, care and concern for the order that God has set up relationships. And that flies in the face of culture. Culture says, I can do anything that the guy can do. Well, the guy can't do everything that you can do. Uh, we're kind of babies. Uh, this is one. I'm not, but we are different. And God has set this up. Now, I don't think guys should be going, let me just tell you what it says, and I'm you know, God's gift to the world of all knowledge. No, you're an arrogant tool. Shut up. Right? No. If the guy's doing that and you're a girl, go to him later one-on-one and go, hey, you know how you said that stuff in, in that connect group and you just came, ac- just came across a little bit strong and like, I'm, I'm just not sure it was totally right. And go to him one-on-one and have that conversation. Uh, help him work that out. Be like, oh, I'm so sorry, sister. Um, don't forget the, la- the language of the New Testament has that um, we had to teach and admonish one another. The one-another language. Men learn from women all the time and women learn from men all the time. Uh, there's no problems with that one-anotherness. It's particularly within the gathering. Now, the Corinthian church was probably a, a, maybe the size of two, two small groups, two connect groups. It wasn't probably not that big. Uh, and so what is that when we're coming together in a connect group? I think there's something about that that is a little bit like a gathering. Um, so I think we want to be expressing manhood and womanhood in the way God has made us in that way. I think that's, but that's how it's being uh, weighed in that case. And I think you also come and get to chat later on and, and talk through stuff. We talk through things in, in um, staff meeting. We throw around what was said and how that is weighed and how that happens. So that's some of the ways that we do it here and we're trying to do it with order uh, in the way that we have the gathering. Next question. How is Christianity any different from Islam in the terms of treatment of women? From the, Cor- from, from Cor- the Corinthians, it seems they are the same. Yeah, I at that point have to say, I don't know with any sort of certainty how Islam treats women. I'll be doing a disservice to comment on any of that there. I can speak about the way that Corinthians um, speaks, the, the book of Corinthians speaks about women, and it's so, so different. 1 Corinthians 7 says, the woman's body belongs to the man. And that's pretty normal for that first century world. But the next sentence says, the, man, the, the man's body belongs to the woman. In, in marriage, this is a husband and wife, P.S. Um, <laughs> very clear. Um, and so at that point, you're like, that is, that is phenomenal. That we belong to each other. This one flesh union is about the man laying down his life for his wife and the wife loving and submitting to him as he leads. This is great. This is good. Uh, it seems very different from that first century world, uh, expressing the um, differences in relationship. Uh, come back, chat with me later, or come and tell me how Islam treats women, and I'll, I'll happily chat through that. Um, the Bible's, I think, very pro-women, far more than any other religion from what I've seen. Last question. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells, um, tells us not to stifle the Spirit. Yes, we are to control our gifts, but what does it look like to stifle the Spirit? Yeah, great question. Um, let's look at it really briefly so that I don't misquote it. Uh, 1 Thessalonians verse five. Sorry, chapter 5, verse 19.
love the flick of pages. The tapping of changing book. <laughs> See to it, verse 15, that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Interesting, building up is there as the key. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things, hold on to what is good, stay awake from every kind of evil. Um, I think here, what does it mean to stifle the Spirit? You've got to ask, what is the role of the Spirit? The role of the Spirit, He consistently points people to Jesus. Uh, The gifts come from the Father and from the Son and from the Spirit. And so we're to use the gifts that God has given us. I I think here, stifling the Spirit, one thing would be, I think perhaps, maybe, uh, to not despise prophecies. Not just saying no, but, but testing them. So as we, as we speak them, don't just write them off, whatever they are. Um, uh, but I, I think it's a matter of going, what does the spiritual life look like? And we've seen that so clearly. The spiritual life, the truly spiritual life, is seeing people focus on the Lordship of Jesus. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? It's funny that the unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that? It's to say that the Spirit's lying. It's called the Spirit is not the Spirit. And what is, this, what is that about? About Jesus. Jesus isn't the Messiah. If you reject that Jesus is the only way to God, if you say that Jesus isn't who the Bible says He is, if you reject the Spirit's testimony about who Jesus is, you have no salvation because you don't trust Jesus. That's why it's unforgivable. So I want to hear to stifle the Spirit. is saying, I'm going, to re- I'm going to reject or play down the Spirit's role in pointing me to Jesus, the Spirit's role in using the gifts in love within the church to build up one another, it's to use the gifts maybe to be a resounding gong rather than in love, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, to say, look at me, look what I can do, let's have these amazing things happen, rather than say, who has God made us? What gifts has He given me? And how can I use them for the building up of the church? I don't think it's saying, oh, you're stifling the Spirit if you're not speaking in tongues in the church. Because Paul says, stop it, don't do it in the church. Oh, If it's interpreted, you can, but at most three, but no, no more than that. He's going, no, 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 none of that, no more of that. Not in the church, not in the gathering. It's not helpful unless it's interpreted. So you can't be saying, speak in more of these kind of ways. And that's, it, sorry, if, if we're not doing more of these spiritual things, then we're, we're, um, we're stifling the Spirit. No, we need to be using the gifts God has given us. And there's not an exhaustive list of those. He has given each of us to one another. So here, here's where I think it is. It's a great spot to end. Will you use who God has made you? to point people to Jesus, in love, to love one another, to turn up at church, to encourage, to speak afterwards, to chat about what God's Word says, to build one another up, to call one another throughout the week, to sing loud in our praises of God as we teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Or will you stifle the Spirit? Will you not let God work through His Word by His Spirit as we build one another up? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep sitting under your word and letting your spirit mold and shape us. We are so thankful for who you've made us. We're so thankful you've called us together as your church. We're so thankful for what Jesus has done at the cross and we pray that by your spirit you will work through us to keep pointing people to Jesus. We ask that we would be your church, your treasured possession, that we will be so joyful that Sin has been conquered, that we live for you 
building one another up in love. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's remind one another of who we are in Christ as we sing loud, not stifling the spirit.